You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, take this time now and be present, living, and active. Come and uh, be here um, as you are with us. Be also for us. Um, uh, speak so that we would hear. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So moving through Colossians, um, it's a five-week series. Uh, I have recalibrated. I have no illusion that we're going to make it through Colossians. So far, I was supposed to be to the end of chapter 2, and I think we're going to sort of camp at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Um, I think we're going to get past it today. We'll see. Um, we're taking a significant diversion into, uh, into Genesis, really the, the sort of Jacob and Esau narrative and that story. Um, uh, sort of two convictions, for lack of a better word, been following here the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, just as I was thinking about uh, this class over the summer, uh, it is not enough that God speaks. It is necessary that He speaks to you. I'm sort of really trying to hammer that home. Um, when I say trying to hammer that home, like everything, you know, it's really me talking to myself, as it were. The Lord gave this word, which I pray humbly that he did, um, sort of release that so that I'm not up here a nervous wreck, saying, what am I doing up here, acting like I know what I'm... Because I'm just trying to struggle through the word as it's interpreting me, as it's doing its work on me. And that's one of the words that I think he's really sort of centering on me. It's not enough that God speaks just sort of like, you know, broadcasting, as it were, throwing seed out anywhere, and just sort of, well, you know, okay, sarah, sarah, and let it be, let it be. Um, it's necessary, not just helpful, it's necessary that he speaks to you, and to you, and to me. Um, not surprisingly, using some art as hearing aids for that speech, um, that, uh, that is the necessary act that God has a personal word, that he's speaking to you, is God with you and God for you, um, using art as a hearing aid, just as a way to increase the clarity, to increase the volume if that's needed, to increase the, uh, the word, the personal word, which I pray the Lord is having. And then likewise, um, a second conviction that comes uh, very related. Uh, uh, I mentioned this last week in Luther's table talk. Um, won't go through all that again. Uh, just a conviction that he has, taken out of several places where the Bible speaks of itself in some really jarring ways, but probably most famously out of Hebrews 4, um, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing joint from marrow, discerning the thoughts of the heart. This very active and almost, if it wasn't for bone, joint, marrow, you could, you could say visceral, as in viscera, you know, a surgical maneuver where the word comes in and divides us from ourselves. Um, that the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands, and it lays hold of me. So this living and active word now personified, um, maybe not even personified, but actually animating itself, where it apprehends us in this necessary activity that God, not just speaking, you know, in a megaphone, hoping that it hits somebody somewhere, but a necessary personal word 
and now the Bible being alive, it speaks to me. Personal address. It has feet, and it runs after me. Um, it has hands, and it lays hold of me. And we're going to see this at the end, Lord willing. <laughs> um, uh, at the end of the Jacob and Esau narrative, where they struggle with each other since before birth, like coming out of their mother's womb, grasping at heel, uh, which is one of the ways Jacob is translated, jostling for position, for power, for blessing, um, that there's finally, finally, finally a restoration in their older age, uh, very reminiscent of Luke 15, where the father runs after the younger son. Uh, the language is almost identical. I never saw it until Thursday. Uh, uh, almost identical, where Esau runs out to Jacob and, uh, and lands on him and embraces him and cries and weeps, uh, and they're reconciled. The Bible has, is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It wants me, and it wants me for God's salvific purpose. And so the question, that's then the bridge, um, that we're trying to ask in this, uh, this series of Christ is Enough as we're working through Colossians, the question that kind of centered up last week um, is what, is it, what does it feel like? I could say what does salvation feel like, but I like to turn the word. What does it feel like? What's the experience of being salvationed? We use the word saved, but it's almost too, too normal to us in the church. What is, it, what is it like to be saved? Well, you know, it evokes whatever it evokes in you, whether it's, you know, your Baptist upbringing or something out of Flannery O'Connor or, a, you know, a sidewalk sermon or a, like a, what, what are those called, like a church billboard sermon. Um, some of them are great. Some of them really funny because they're not so great. Um, some of them are just harmful, just flat wrong. Um, but whatever that evokes... Turn that around. What is the experience of being salvationed? Uh, what's that like in the here and now, in the blood, the sweat, the tears, the laughter, the joy, the pain, the sorrow, the happiness, the boredom, just the four score and whatever years that we might have? Um, which, incidentally, I think is what the Bible means when it uses the word sanctification. If you're following this, um, there's justification, sanctification, glorification. We were saved. I am being saved. It's the present experience of being salvationed. And then I will be saved um, when the presence of sin once finally and fully is going to be removed from us. Thanks be to God. Um, when uh, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more heat, no more cold, no more privation. We will simply be in the presence of God and no longer at all in the presence of sin, flesh, the law, the world, the devil, anything else that pulls us away. So that's kind of where we are. I like to shape the class each time, just kind of as an intro to kind of bring us back a little bit of emotionally, but also just kind of in our heads, oh yeah, that's where we were. So, um, uh, so Colossians, um, Christ is enough. Um, isn't this a great phrase? God has made you alive. That's right out of Colossians 2. Um, these little one-liners that sometimes come up and out. It's like, wow, that's, that's really great. God has made you alive. Um, uh, that, we'll, we'll, we'll be there a little bit. But Christ is enough. I um, also want to come up to this a little bit each time. Um, 
that's information. But it's a certain kind of information, isn't it? Um, one way I was thinking of it this morning, uh, my gas gauge, what, Friday, you know, the light comes on. That's information. It says you don't have enough gas. Well, I don't have a visceral reaction. I don't, there's not some re inner resistance that comes up to me um, when I'm told that uh, I don't have enough gas. You need to stop and get some more. In the same way that we might have when the information is passed that Christ is enough. Um, uh, there's a part of me, this godless rebel that we talked about last time, the one that the Bible is going to call again and again, who is dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, it rebels against that word. Christ is enough. You know, no thank you. You know, I've got it. I want to be in charge a little bit longer. Um, it's my life. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I don't need it purchased as Paul will hit home several times. Your life is not your own. Uh, it, was, uh, it was purchased with a price. Um, uh, why is it that we have this instinctive, habitual, willful obstinacy uh, that needs to be divided, joint from marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, where this old heart wants to say, you know, I'm in charge. I am my master. I am my Lord. I am my God. I'm a godless rebel because I need no other God except me. That's who we are in our flesh. Um, it's a different type of information. It's an assault on me. When the word comes to us that says Christ is enough, there's a part of me that wants to say, I don't need him. I don't want him. I'm in charge leave me alone and that's where we're trying to get at right now in this sense of um, of what's it like to be salvationed to be brought to our death and then brought to life and so first week the daybreakers clip that experience of baptism oddly enough out of that vampire movie which you know it's not my genre but but i can appreciate that that's why they they sometimes are christian sub art um uh, because vampires are dead. They don't have, they need blood because they don't have any. They don't have a heartbeat. They're, they're not alive. They're the walking dead, which the Bible says all of us are. And then thrown under the water. He goes under the water dead, and he comes out alive. What's that like, that experience? And so we looked at Caravaggio, where there's this moment that Caravaggio, among other things, is trying to say, what is the moment like in the calling of St. Matthew, where he was at once as a, what does it say, in 2.13, um, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. An evil deed, isn't that strange? Just going about his day godless and therefore evil, not malicious, not actively looking for the downfall of others, just counting a day's wages. I'm giving that a very generous look. I mean, nothing wrong with trading time for money. He's just going about his day. But what's it like when Christ almost, you know, reminiscent of, uh, of, uh, of Michelangelo's hand, um, where, where the power of God is about to go into Adam, you know, fanciful. It's not quite the way the Bible describes it, but it's, it's, uh, it's effective. In that moment of pregnancy, of power, of animus, animation, where life is about to go into Adam, when he's about to impart life to a dead man, whether this 
is Matthew or whether this is Matthew or whether in fact all three of these are Matthew or then interesting. We won't go here. I really want to. Or whether all five of them are in fact Matthew at different points of her life, almost like a Thomas Cole kind of thing. I don't know. But this pregnancy of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into, it's from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, into the kingdom of light, with of course Caravaggio being the master of light from chiaroscuro, light, dark. Um, uh, we looked at that, trying to get to the sense of what is it like to be salvationed? What's the feeling that comes? What's the experience, the apprehension, the sense of being overtaken by this living and active word which is alive and it runs after me and it lays hold of me with its, uh, uh, with its hands? Um, that's where we are. Any comments or thoughts? You just kind of being an intro here, which we'll reset each week for the first 10 minutes or so before we then dive into to the text. And Cumby, you know, this is Cumby Tyndall, mine, art history uh, teacher, and just that, yeah, I've learned a lot from her. Um, any thoughts? Or You weren't here last week with Caravaggio, so. So, my mother was commenting that um, um, there's no literary translation of the Bible, and I think that's a good an interesting observation um, and in this period like even Rembrandt would create the light you know to move us around the composition and also to create this tension that you're talking about mm. that's good I have an idea we'll talk about that later so, um. Let's read, because I never want to just prattle on without ever actually actually getting to the thing which created my prattling. Um, so I took a liberty of bolding a few sections of the paper, of the, uh, not the paper, of the verses in front of you. Um, uh, one, it's going to be 13 to 15, a couple of verses in 21, and then skipping down to chapter 2, verse 6. And the partly illustrative that Paul can't get away from this. Um, I would say here in Colossians, but really anytime. He, he will always kind of want to come back and just remind us who we are, where we've been, where we are now, where we're going in this experience of being salvationed, of this pregnancy of moment, of this point of transition. I like that. Between dark and light and on this moment of like now, me, here, in this room, like here, like this is not a holy place. This is not what I thought this would be like. Is this where you're going to invade? Is this the moment? Is this the now that you speak of? And they once were, but now you are. You once were hostile in mind, but now you've been reconciled in his body of flesh. Um, so I highlighted those, those four pieces just to kind of bring that out a little bit more. So reading from Colossians 1 and 2, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'm now talking about the beloved Son, Christ. Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And you, remember that personal word? And you, who once were alienated 
and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, the Daybreakers clip, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So many in hymns, which I'm not even going to pursue. I mean, it just drips in this passage that Christ is enough and we are in him. This baptism, like, like I'm submerged in him. All union, surrounding, drowned, united, um, all these approaches of different ways that we can begin to apprehend that. So, with all of that, hearing those four parts of what it's like with the conviction that it's necessary to have a personal word, that Christ, that God has a word for you, uh, with what it's like to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, what happens when you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, have now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to be presented by him holy and blameless and above reproach? What is it like to be buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God? And what is it like when you are displaced by this apprehension, by this overwhelming reality of what's truly true and really real and actually actual, that you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, setting it aside. We're still here asking all these questions. Just put that up so y'all can look at it. It's, called, it's uh, Colossians 1.15 that's going to be the linchpin, the bridge for all of this. It's just one of the, I mean, it's just one of the soaring short verses in all of Scripture. I know that's a huge statement, but it's a, I, I think that's true. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God. Um, uh, and so, just to interact a little bit with this, we'll go more here. John the Baptist pointing to... Th- you want to know what God looks like? Right here. He is the image of the invisible God. And this is what Paul has in mind. Enri, Latin for um, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, um, nailing that to the cross, um, as he says there. Uh, that's what he, I think he has his mind, canceling the record of debt that stood. There's an IOU. Here is what I have against you. Um, 
that's your trespasses, or here is where you did not keep up your end of the contract, of the covenant. Those are the debts. So that's the way we use that word sin, debts, and trespasses. They mean a little bit of a different thing. This is what you did wrong. This is what you didn't do that you said you would do, a debt versus a trespass. And so that's omission and commission. Um, He takes both of those and he nails them up there. And he's got that sort of entendre with the idea of... uh, a pilot said, I've written what I have written, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, um, Enri, as we sometimes will call it. So all this, really want to sort of stay here for the rest of the time using Jacob and Esau to help us. He is the image, the visible expression of the invisible God. Uh, to get in towards that, um, to get towards that, Alistair McGrath, it's been a long time, but he's been here before. Um, gosh, a prolific author and somebody who's really, really helpful in a lot of ways. Um, an Englishman, probably in his you know mid to late 60s by now. I'd like to have him back sometime. He went to Oxford. He's English. Um, he's taught over there for many years. Went there as an undergraduate um, in biology. Um, and he's coming out with a new book, evidently, which is kind of his, his autobiography of a transition from atheism um, with a, a, a heavy belief in, in the rationalism of science. It's be interesting for you, Richard. Um, uh, and how it would, um, uh, how, we, how we converted from atheism to something like a theism to something like, uh, to very specifically Christianity, not unlike C.S. Lewis, by the way. Um, and here's his point using Colossians 1.15 as a part of his story. I'm reading this from an excerpt from his forthcoming book, A Return from a Distant Country, which is Luke 15, also present here in Colossians. You who are once... Uh, hostile, alienated in a distant country and hostile in mind, being brought back, reconciled. That's what the word reconcile is, to be brought back to the center, being brought back to rights, being brought, you know, the numbers are far off and you reconcile the account and you bring them back to zero. Um, You bring it back, you bring it back. That's reconcile. Alistair McGrath, I was an atheist when I arrived in Oxford. Although I had some growing doubts about whether atheist was really as simple and as rational as I had thought, my doubts increased as it became clear to me that my atheist friends at Oxford couldn't prove that their beliefs were right. I gradually came to see that atheism was a matter of faith, not something that could be proved. Kind of interesting. These friends believed that there was no God, but could not show that this was right. I had been attracted to atheism as a teenager because of its apparent certainty, and now I began to realize that it was actually a faith. As I met and talked to lots of students and academics who were Christians, I began to realize that I had misunderstood what Christianity was about. One of the reasons for my teenage atheism was that I believed that God was a total irrelevance. God was in heaven, but I was on earth in the midst of time and space. God had no connection with or presence within my world and could say nothing or do nothing of any relevance to me. Remember, the Bible is alive. It runs after me. These worldviews are colliding. But my Christian friends at Oxford told me about the Christian doctrine of the incarnation. Incarnate, to be made meat, to be made flesh. Um, I could see that if this were right, it's a game changer. God was not a distant irrelevance, but someone who chose to enter into my world of space and time in Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us, John 1.14. 
Suddenly, I realized why Christians put Christ at the heart of their faith. If we, if we asked, if we are asked what God is like, we can point, there's a pointing finger, we can point to Christ who shows us God's nature and face. We can see the face, not merely know the character of our God. God is like Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. It's a statement of the incarnation, which of course points to the reason for the incarnation is the death and the resurrection. God came into the world to save sinners. So the incarnation happened. Christmas coming up. Oh, shoot. Christmas is coming up because Good Friday is needed so that the empty tomb on Easter can be sunk. Thanks be to God. Um, this one-size-fits-all God, we're about to get to that with the showdown at the Jabbok River where Jacob wrestles who? We don't really know. And one-size-fits-all God doesn't fit anywhere. And that's what McGrath realized when he went, thinking, ah, I'm a bright 16-year-old punk. I know what the world is like. You know, I'm an atheist because that's provable. That's rational. That's what I can get my hands around. And he realized, how do you prove a negative? How do you prove that God doesn't exist? Um, that's a leap of faith. He came to realize this one-size-fits-all God, this your truth, my truth God that's malleable and sellable, your personal Jesus, we've been kind of chasing that a little bit, not helpful. Had no word for him when he needed a word of certainty. Um, and so by aiming for everything, uh, we get nothing, and it leaves open all the shallow criticisms that we'll hear, that God is the opiate of society for a... Uh, uh, for those that are suffering or those that aren't bright. You know, it's Marx or it's wish fulfillment, Freud, um, Carl Jung, the flying spaghetti monster of Dawkins. I didn't mean to go into apologetics, but a little bit here. Our projected image of your father, um, or some might call it fate, you know, some sort of Greek, sort of uh, uh, almost Zeusian kind of idea, or just anything else. The collective force of Star Wars, which is Carl Jung, that we're all sort of tied together in some sort of pantheistic Buddhism, uh, or there's a claim that the Bible is alive and it's active and it's discerning the thoughts of the reality of what's really true and actual. Um, and God was made man and dwelled among us and he's the image of the invisible God and he looks like this. So one other place. Um, uh, yeah, let's just let's skip that quote. Maybe I'll use it next week. Um, so going back into Genesis, nice guy, bring a Bible, didn't lay him out. Um, going to flip around a little bit, working toward Genesis 32, which is the Jacob wrestling part. Um, but even before that, out of Genesis 25, uh, with Esau and Jacob, Jacob, you know, there's lots of entendre that goes on here, whether it's the name Israel, which is going to be what, how Jacob is renamed, or his name, which means something like, how about this? Um, liar, cheat, conniver, deceiver, um, Yaakov in Hebrew. Um, I've got lots of friends named Jacob. <laughs> I don't, I'm just like, man, I'm sorry. Yes, um, uh, there they are, two nations in your womb, it says. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins, and the first came out red. This is going to be Esau. Um, all, uh, all his body like a hairy cloth, cloak. Um, King James, I love there. And he came out in hairy man. I thought that was funny. Um, uh, and so they called his name Esau because uh, 
Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, because it also means clutching at the heel. So it's deceiver, clutching at the heel, so that his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And the boys grew up, and Esau was a skillful hunter, uh, while uh, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob, the mother. And so you got this tension, this conflict. I mean, it is dysfunction from before birth. That's go- so be encouraged. <laughs> you know? um, uh, and then right after that, so it's going to be this chasing, this clutching after the heel of the blessing. He can't not live. Jacob can't live knowing that he's in debt without this blessing clutching at the heel. I wanted to be first. I wanted to be first. Now they're teenagers. This is such a 13-year-old story. Um, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, remember 13, this is such a, he probably ate breakfast. And now it's like three o'clock. And he says, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. Um, uh, And Jacob said, sell me your birthright. Um, Actually, back then they did do it that way. The oldest always got the first. Absolutely. Primogenitor. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, so yeah. clutching at the heel. You know, He knew he was right. Yeah. Um, but he's trying to connive and swindle and cheat and undo. Um, and he says, I'm about to die. He's like, he's not dying. He's hungry. He hasn't eaten in four hours. I'm being a little bit funny. Um, uh, what use is this birthright to me? And so swear to me now. And so he does. So the first passage of the blessing. And you swift over a couple of chapters later in chapter 27. I'll move quickly. Um, you remember now Esau, the older, who does get the blessing. The older son gets everything. It's a way to keep wealth in the family. That way it didn't go from 1 to 3 to 13 to 24. And pretty soon the estate's all divided. So the oldest gets everything. Um, Esau comes to Isaac, uh, his father, at the right time when Isaac is an old man. He can't see anymore. I think about this almost every morning. This is personal because I I wear contacts. Without contacts, I mean, I would look at Frank and I would say, hey, Kevin, how you doing? I mean, I would have no idea. I can't see my toes. Um, So I know it's it's so sad, isn't it? So thank you, Sandy. I mean, I love this woman. So only person who has compassion on me. So um, uh, I used to wonder, like, you're kidding, right? And I was like, no, I get it. I get it. Um, He can't see, and so he says, "Come here, oh Esau, my son, my smut. You know, you know, I've loved you since you were born, because you you're a man, a skillful hunter, and I eat of your game and all that sort of thing. Go out." You know, hunt, bring me back my favorite meal, and then I'll give you my blessing. Because the blessing was everything. But Rebecca heard it. Um, she's also participating in the conniving. Says, Jacob, come here. Put on your brother's clothes. Um, let me rub this all over you so you smell like him and all that sort of stuff. And I'm going to make the meal. And I'll go in and say, you're Esau. Jacob, you cheat your brother again. Go in and fool your dad. Tell him that you're Esau, and I'll help you. And he goes in there, and it works. You know, he tries to ferret it out. It's like, come here, and he grabs his hand. He's like, okay, you are Esau. I can smell you. Um, and so he gives Jacob the blessing. Then Esau comes back. And, of course, he's totally uh, undone by this. Um, Esau, what? You don't have room for the blessing? He's like, I've done what I've done. I can't not do this. I can't undo what's been done. That's a whole story right there we'll get into. 
And it comes out. I mean, listen to these words. The days then... Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. I'll get past those. And then I will kill my brother Jacob. Rebecca hears that. So Jacob's on the lamb. He's on the run. Um, he goes to her uncle, her brother, her uncle Laban. Now the cheats do the cheat. I mean, what a story. You've got hope for your family's problems. Read this one. Because now he goes to one cheat. Jacob goes to another cheat. Laban, you know, I want to marry Rachel. Um, okay, works seven years. He says that sounds like a good idea. Does that, but gives her Leah, who is comely, not as attractive. He says, what, what just happened? I'm supposed to have Rachel. He's like, well, work another seven years and you can have her. Okay, so he does that. Now he's got two wives, and et cetera, and so forth. So 14, 20 years pass. All this stuff goes on. He cheats Laban out again because Laban cheated him out of all these years by figuring out how to get his, his, uh, his goats to mate in a certain way. Remember stripping the branches? It's crazy. It's just absolute nuts. Makes Laban mad, so now he's on the run again. So he can't go over here because of Laban, but over here is Esau. So he's like, what am I going to do? And he says, you know, it's been 20 years. Maybe Esau, I'm a rich man now. I can buy him off. Maybe he won't kill me. So it sets all this up where he's on the run. He moves everything past. Uh, and he, 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 he sends, he, he kind of divides everybody in case Laban is so mad that he kills everybody over here in group A, that group B would still be alive. I mean, it's very strategic. I mean, it's so realistic. 6,000 years ago, hard to believe, but this is how it would be today. Um, if you watch Sopranos, the new prequels coming out, I mean, it's absolute same strategy. Uh, then Jacob sends everybody alone away, and so he's left alone. And then just great passage. He's expecting Esau, and he meets God. So here this is. God, as God has not made himself known. God, as he has not preached himself. God, who has not gospeled himself by becoming flesh, by making himself a visible expression of his invisibility and hanging himself on the cross and being subject to death, even death on a cross, who emptied himself into like liquid being poured into a form God poured himself into flesh and bone and skin and was incarnate and was made meat for you it is necessary that the word for you was made flesh to dwell among us to die because left undone it's who is this figure is this my brother is this my past all the people I've cheated all the shame, this blessing that I keep clutching for, my entire life being pursued by a blessing. Hear the story again. I think God's taught on this ten times. And just hearing it again, this time with the pregnancy of, of this unknown figure who comes to, to, to wrestle Jacob, of course he thinks it's Esau. He's been on the run, and he's been afraid of his brother for 20 years. And he comes to the showdown. The same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants. This is Genesis 32, verse 22. His two female servants and his 11 children. He crossed the ford of the Jabbok and he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. I always hear that word. I always hear that word. 
and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Was that Esau? That's who he has to think it is. Esau's found me. Esau's found me. And they wrestle. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. And then he, the dark figure, the man, said, Let me go, for the day is broken. Esau's got to be spinning. I mean, Jacob has to be spinning by now. I was going even with him. And all of a sudden, how in the world did he do that? How did he do that? With, with, it just felt like a finger to him. Um, but he's still holding on. Let me go, for the day is broken, the other guy says. And Jacob says, what's he been chasing for 20 years? The blessing. For his entire life, the blessing. I will not let go unless you bless me. And then he said to him, what is your name? The dark figure, when he thinks it's Esau. Got to be confused. What do you mean, what's my name? I'm your brother. He says, I'm Jacob. Then he said, your name should no longer be called Jacob, uh, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This why I asked Mark. It's a really hard, gentlelet. It's a hard, it's hard to know the etymology of the word Israel. God's striver, he who has striven with God. Maybe another reading is one who has seen God face to face. Because um, you cannot see God and live. That's a mid, anyway, that's another story. Just this, this confusion clouds the whole story, even this renaming of Jacob. Uh, please tell me your name. Uh, you should be called Jacob, for you have striven with God and prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. You're not Esau. Who are you? Uh, but he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And Jacob called for the name, he called the name of the place Peniel, because I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And it goes on, uh, and morning comes, and then what? This is where I almost weep. Um, morning comes, and then who, when Jacob looks up, and he looks out, who does he see? He sees his brother Esau. And this is how it says. Um, uh, and Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Fear, expectation, mix of everything. And so he put his servants with their children out in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel last of, and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing. He's not sure. I'm about to lose my head. You know, I, whatever I, whatever's coming my way, because now I'm no longer the cheat. But I'm he's either seen God or striven with God. And then Esau, Luke 15, if you remember it, the father running out to the son. And then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And I pulled this up, selling what I could find. It doesn't begin to get it. That's one reason I want to pull this out. It doesn't, it's not enough. Esau is still too removed. Too removed. This is not. I mean, this was two men coming back somehow, or at least Jacob, now Israel, shattered and remade, thrust under the water, and then coming out alive. Um, what does it feel like? Did I do this? Yep. Um, well, not quite. Um, what does it feel like to be in that transition between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved? What does it feel like to be once far off and now be brought near. Well, somehow, whatever it is, here's the one 
who is the linchpin, the bridge, the one that carries it across, so that the things that we're hoping for, reconciliation with God and with one another, the two planes of the cross, um, that's where we're going to pick it up somewhere next week. Somehow, the cross, the cross, the cross is everything. So, since the word's out of Colossians, let me pray because it's time to go. Lord, take these humble words feebly offered and uh, uh, by your grace um, amplify them um, so they would run after us, uh, they would take hold of us, and, uh, and your work done in your way would never lack for any needed thing. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.